Father in heaven, we give you thanks for tonight. Thank you for this space. Thank you for one another. Thank you for your son that came to save sinners. Father, we're here as a testimony of his grace in our lives. And we're thankful. And we pray that you'd help us to hold on to this truth, to live it out, and that uh, this community would be pleasing in your sight. So we pray, Father, now that as I speak, that my words would uh, be true, that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully. Pray that you give us all hearts that are ready to hear, hungry to hear, and that you would be at work by your word and your spirit in us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'll read it out loud and you can follow along in your Bibles. <coughs> this is what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practising homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. <clears throat> so before we uh, get stuck into these verses in particular, I want to just take a little bit of time to think about uh, the book of 1 Timothy as a whole together, and that will kind of hopefully orient ourselves a little bit, uh, get our bearings, and then consider, that will help us then consider um, what is here in verses 1 to 11. <coughs> So, the first thing to notice uh, in reading 1 Timothy and thinking about it together is that it's written to Timothy. might seem like an obvious point, but it's not written to a church. So, in a way, we are kind of looking over Timothy's shoulder 
as we read the letter together. Uh, if it was uh, to a church, it might be slightly different as we made the application, but here, because it's written to him, uh, it means that we have to take a little bit of caution in applying things directly from him to us. We just have to do that work of recognising that this was written to him. So who is Timothy? Timothy is Paul's co-worker. He's somebody who has worked alongside Paul, under Paul, such that Paul can call him my true son in the faith. We saw that there in verse 2. To Timothy, my true son. He's also what you might call uh, an apostolic delegate. Let's go with that. Um, and what I mean by that is the Apostle Paul has delegated him for a particular task, and here we've just read that he's left him in Ephesus. <clears throat> so Timothy's in Ephesus, and that's the context into which Paul writes to Timothy. It's somewhat debated um, about whether Timothy or the position of Timothy uh, or a kind of Timothy position uh, continues to exist today, and we won't go into that this evening uh, as some sort of yeah, official role. Um, but nonetheless, I think there are a couple of things that we, we can see, uh, even if we don't think that there is a kind of Timothy role that on continues today. Uh, one of them is that we see some of the priorities for a church leader. And that's fairly natural to assume. If Paul felt the need to, um, to write to Timothy uh, and give him instructions, we can assume, I think, fairly naturally that he would have written things that are of importance and are a priority. So we can get a window into priorities for a church leader. And because of the concern of the letter, we get a window into uh, Paul's, and thereby God's, vision of a healthy church. And we'll see that uh, in chapter 3, and verse 14 to 15. You don't need to turn there, I'll just read it out to you. <coughs> and it's fairly key, I think, to the letter. He says to Timothy a bit later on, yeah, it's about halfway, he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, that's Paul, I want to come to you soon, Timothy, but... I am writing to you with these instructions so that, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. I think, that was, I think that's a fairly key verse uh, for 1 Timothy. He's writing to Timothy... He says, I'm writing to you so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So in reading this letter, we get a window into the life of the leader, and we get a window into God's vision for the church. That's helpful. Those two things there are helpful as we consider the letter as a whole. <clears throat> now, just briefly on those two points, why... Would it be of use to those who are not in leadership to think about the priorities for a leader? As most of us won't be in leadership. For those who are in leadership, it's a fairly um, easy, uh, it's, a, it's a much easier application and it's an encouragement and we're grateful for it. But let me just give a couple of reasons why you should be interested, in other words. 
Uh, first, I think it's helpful to think about um, the life of a leader <coughs> because it helps with our empathy. It's a kind of walk a mile in another person's shoes type of thing. Uh, an example of this would be uh, I take uh, the four of our children for the day while Joanna leaves the house. And when she comes home, I'm more empathetic to uh, her daily life. And I say, I praise her for how wonderful she is. And I beg her many mercies and, um, and our marriage is benefited from it. So it's a, it's a case of um, empathy. Or likewise, um, you might think of uh, pastors before they go into the ministry uh, are often encouraged to get some experience in the workplace because you spend time in the workplace and by doing so, walking a mile in, in another person's shoes, in, in the shoes that most of the congregation are going to be in, you get to realise, oh, that's what it's like for the daily grind. That's what it's like to get up day after day, same thing, same thing. Uh, and you begin to become more empathetic and you can understand their life a bit better. That will help you, family, um, because it will help you to know how to pray. That's one thing that will grow from this. As you see the life of a leader, you'll be able to say, ah, right, that's, that's uh, going to be a challenge. That will help us in our prayers when we're encouraged to pray for our leaders. What we're going to see for Timothy is that there are challenges to being a leader. Uh, there is the burden of teaching what is true. Uh, there is the challenge of exercising authority which anybody who's been in authority will know that that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, he's got to manage a complex situation uh, in managing the church. For example, uh, in chapter 5, he's dealing with a complex situation about which widows ought to be um, supported by the church. He's got his own faith to deal with. He, like, and he, I, Dan, the rest of us as leaders, are like other people in that we're still people. We are people who have to fight the fight of faith for ourselves. We're people who uh, have to crucify the flesh daily. We're people who have to fight for purity, just like everybody else. Uh, Timothy lives in, this, in a context in which uh, the, uh, the devil is still at work. There are some people who have been led astray uh, by Satan. That's another challenge that comes with his task. There are false teachers and there's false teachings. He's got that to contend with. There are verse 4... Uh, sorry, chapter 4 and verse 1. There are deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. He's got a world, an unseen world, that the leader battles against as well. There are distractions, which is going to be one of today's focuses. And he's got a whole community of people that he's managing. There's a challenge for the leader. There's a burden for the leader. And so as we look into Timothy and we see... Oh, that's the life of the leader, and these are the expectations for them. It can shape our prayers. We'll also see uh, that it's that the, that the way to view the leader is not of them and an us, but a we. By Paul, by uh, framing Timothy's task as somebody who's working in God's household, he frames Timothy's task as somebody in a family. It's a family, uh, and that's the context in which Timothy serves. Second thing, uh, under the same uh, heading about uh, leadership, is accountability. <coughs> As we see in chapter 3, the, the priorities and expectations of a leader, uh, it will help us as a congregation to hold our leaders 
are accountable. And if we are a congregational church, like we are here, it will help us in knowing what, we, what to expect for our leaders as we employ them, uh, as we uh, discharge, um, commission them into the task of being an elder. Paul can uh, summarise this accountability and this, these priorities and expectations uh, in chapter 4, verse 16, which is another really helpful verse for understanding Timothy as a whole at um, what Paul wants to say to Timothy. It says, Paul says to Timothy, watch your life. He says to him, watch your life and doctrine closely. And those two things are where his priorities lie. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's a whole bunch of really important things tied up in that verse. <coughs> and finally, it's important for us to see the life of the leader, because leaders are often held up as examples of the faith for us to follow. Um, in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, <coughs> The author there of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so as we see Timothy, we can see an example, at least how he's supposed to live, of a godly life. So that's why it's, that's why it's helpful for us as people who are not in leadership to learn about leadership in the church. And the second as I said at the beginning, was God's design for church life and structure. We get a window into the vision of a healthy church. Just a couple of reasons why that's helpful. One is that we'll often find ourselves in here somewhere in this letter. Perhaps it's in uh, seeing the priority of prayer in chapter 2. That's applicable for all of us, where, Paul's, where Paul says, I urge them first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then in verse 8 it says, therefore I want men everywhere to pray. Not just a couple of men. He wants, I want, I want uh, men everywhere to pray. Lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. It might be uh, for those among us who have aspirations for uh, being an overseer themselves. Paul would say in chapter 3, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. He doesn't, um, he doesn't put down the aspiration to be an overseer, but he does elevate uh, the seriousness of the task. It's a noble task, and therefore there are criteria for somebody who wants to be an overseer. And that's helpful for a church, uh, for those in the church to know about. Uh, there's also questions about formally caring for people uh, as a church and what principles are at play in who gets what. That's in chapter 5, in caring for widows. So as a church, is, has God said anything about how we should care for people in the church, how we should distribute our finances, our resources? Is it just that there's completely unchecked and unconditional and just kind of open up a bank and just anybody, everybody get a card and just kind of... Uh, make withdrawals whenever you feel free? Or is there a kind of framework and a rationale for how we should do that? How should we order ourselves as a church? So we'll often find ourselves somewhere in the letter because it's dealing with how the church will organise itself. Some of this might be challenging, as we'll see, when it comes to... Uh, one example might be chapter 2, uh, when we read Paul's words about women in the church. 
it's helpful to know why things are in the church the way they are. One of the key uh, things that we'll see with respect to the the church in particular um, is, as I've already mentioned, I'll repeat it again, is that it's a household. It's God's household. It's perhaps the most significant metaphor in 1 Timothy. It comes up in chapter 3 twice. In verse 5, he uses it as a reason for why an elder must be able to manage his family. In verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? There's a parallel here between the family and its management and the church and its management. One is the household of the man, another is the household of God. And there's an order to both. And he also brings it up in verse 15 of chapter 3. He says, if I am delayed, we've already read this, but I'll, I'll point out this one point again. Uh, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. <laughs> and that is an introduction, but we need to pause there, because I may have gone too long already, but I hopefully... Uh, that gives you a little bit of a framework for understanding one Timothy as a whole um, as we dig into the little parts of it. And so that will be a bit for today's uh, sermon in the series. In today's portion, as we've just read from verses 1 uh, through to 11, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together, <clears throat> what we're introduced to is a few themes. And so we're going to take the rest of our time, I'm going to kind of walk through, hopefully quick, uh, pace as to some themes that emerge in these first 11 verses uh, and that will hopefully from what, what I've just introduced us with and what we see here we'll be able to um, see how the two relate and that will help us to uh, locate Timothy and see what Paul's big aims are. The first uh, is that Paul wants Timothy to exercise authority what he says there in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. That's the first big thing he says. I've left you there so that you can command certain people not to teach false doctrines. Paul, Timothy needs to exercise authority. Yeah. I don't know about you. But you read that, I read that, and I think, gosh, that's strong, isn't it? In verse 3. Such strong language, command certain people. And, again, if you're like me, you might balk at such strong language, perhaps because we've seen bad examples of authority. And we feel nervous when we hear such strong language. The thing about authority is, authority is good when it's in the service of good. And authority is bad when it's in the service of bad. I don't think that authority in and of itself is the problem. For example, I like when police protect vulnerable people from dangerous people. That, in my mind, is a good exercise of authority. 
And I'm glad that they get to exercise it. And for Timothy, Timothy is supposed to be a servant. So his authority is supposed to be shaped straight away from the outset by being a servant of Jesus. Now I'm just, not, I'm just making that up. That's what Paul says, and it's something of a surprise. He says, <coughs> uh, further down in chapter 4, verse 6, look what he says here. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, ah, this is what happens when you mix and match your translations. The word minister is the word servant, all right? If you've got the NIV. If you point these things out to the brothers, minister, that's because I'll say it, because minister feels like, oh, he's a minister, you know, like in a position of authority. Anyway, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Right? That's what you'll be. And that comes a bit of a surprise as you're reading it. You think, oh, you'll, oh, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Yeah, right. That is good to know, Timothy. That is a really good thing that he needs to be told, that as a leader, his position is a position of serving. He's not to lord it over the people that he um, is, a, is, a, is an overseer of. He's not to lord it over them like the Gentiles do. Paul right here is just following on the teaching of Jesus that we've been um, uh, hearing about in Mark, or we will hear about um, in, as the series continues later in the year. And he's a servant of Christ, and he has a very high responsibility. And so he needs to exercise that authority, because the duty is great, because he's preserving the gospel that saves sinners. And so the strength of the language, I think, corresponds to the importance of the task. He's entrusted with the gospel of the living God, which saves sinners, is in a a situation which there are threats to the gospel and threats to the people, and so it needs to be encouraged because the task is great. So that's the first thing Timothy needs to do, needs to exercise authority, and he needs to do that because there are other doctrine teachers around. See what it says? You are to command certain people not to teach (coughs) false doctrines any longer. (coughs) There are other people, and it says certain people, and I don't know why Paul has not specified them. Uh, I think that the people that he's referring to are people in the church. I don't think he's referring to people outside of the church. Uh, I prefer the ESV (coughs) where it says to teach other doctrines, not to teach any other doctrine, uh, or to devote themselves to myths. I suspect that what he's doing, what what he's talking about here is he's talking about people who are heading in the wrong direction. He's not told to um, completely uh, remove them from the church. I think he's told, told, uh, Paul's telling Timothy to give these people a strong word that they need to uh, stop devoting themselves to these myths and stop teaching other doctrines and come back to teaching uh, the entrusted message of the gospel. Life would be peachy without error, but the context in which Timothy is working is one, uh, if we go to, if I just read out Acts 20, this is what Paul's final words to the Ephesians, and look, he says these quite sobering words. 
uh, in chapter 20, verse 28. So Paul, in, in, I'm, I'm now in Acts, so I realise it's moved pretty quick there. I'm now in Acts, and in Acts, Paul is leaving the Ephesian church, and he's saying goodbye to the elders, and that's where Timothy is, if you remember. So at the beginning of the sermon, I said, Timothy is in Ephesus. And this is what he says to them. <clears throat> he says, keep watch over yourselves, <clears throat> And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. But this is the shock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. That's sobering, isn't it? That's the context into which uh, Paul is writing. There are, he needs to, Timothy needs to exercise authority because there are other doctrine teachers out there or in there. And so what Timothy needs to do is he needs to hold on to that healthy teaching that has been handed down to him. And that's going to be one of the themes that runs through. So there's a few pairs that come up uh, through the letter. And this is one of them. There are other doctrine teachers and there is healthy teaching. There's a kind of handed down body, a core. Uh, there's something that's been entrusted to Paul. We see in chapter 1, verse 11. There's something that's been passed on to Timothy. We'll read about that in chapter 6, verse 20, where it says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Uh, and Paul can say in the... Uh, Earlier, right here at the start of the letter, what we've read today, um, the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. You see that? There's a handed down core, and that's what Timothy needs to hold on to. It's been handed on to Paul, it's been given to Timothy, and he needs to hold on to that in contrast to these other doctrine teachers. And if he does, chapter 4, verse 16, which I've read already, See now how it's important. You will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, that is what is at stake. <clears throat> okay, so there's this other teaching out there. What is the source of this other teaching? <clears throat> That's where Paul's going to instruct Timothy now. He's going to say, this other teaching doesn't just spring up from nowhere. But it comes from a wrong focus. And that wrong focus is dangerous. Look what he says. He says they're not to teach false doctrines any longer, verse 4, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These errors, they, they come out from the distractions, the myths the endless genealogies. Later on, he's going to talk about wives. He's going to talk about wives' tales. He's going to instruct Timothy right at the end of the letter. He says, uh, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. That's the last thing he wants to say to Timothy. It's what he says to him at the beginning of the letter. It's what he says to him at the end of the letter. He says, these people have followed after things like quarrels about words, Wives' tales, things that are falsely called knowledge, myths, genealogies, 
all these exciting things that lead you down a path and before you know it, you're teaching the wrong thing. So beware of what fills your minds. That's the first source of uh, where this other teaching comes from. And the second is from a lack of concern for the interior life. That's the other thing that he's going to point out about these people, uh, these certain people, and of which he's going to encourage Timothy to do precisely the opposite. So in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, sorry, he carries on in verse 5, he says, the goal of this command, that is the command for you to tell these people to stop teaching these things, uh, is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then you see, he says, some have departed from these. What are the these? It's going back, isn't it, to what he said in verse 5. What he wants is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And you see, that's the interior life of the believer. A clean heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's a concern for the interior life. And Paul says, some people, by missing that, missing the focus, the concern, for watching their own interior life, they've wandered off and they've started just talking meaningless talk. So there, you can see there now there's those two things that are the source of this uh, other teaching, this wrong teaching. It's from being distracted on the one hand by things that might seem exciting, but are not that, that entrusted message. It's, 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 by, it's by giving your attention there and not giving the attention to the interior life, to your faith, to a clean heart, and to a good conscience. <clears throat> and Paul wants to encourage Timothy, just like he did uh, when he said, uh, don't be, um, uh, instruct these people who are teaching the other doctrine to stop. In contrast to what they focus their attention on and neglect, he wants to say to Timothy, you on the other hand, give yourself to the Scriptures. Devote yourself to the Scriptures. In chapter 4, verse 13, this is where you see, so what he's done here is, these, look, look what these guys are doing, that's the wrong thing. And then when he gives Timothy instructions, he gives him instructions on the, the opposites of those two things. So you notice that it's the same word, devote. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. And what did they do in chapter 1, verse 4? They devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. That's where they pay their attention. You pay your attention, Timothy, to Scripture, to the public reading, to the preaching, and to the teaching. And secondly, Take care of your interior life. <coughs> Chapter 4, verse 7, 12, 15, 16, all the way through there, it's a strong command. He says, have nothing to do with godless wives, myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. 
Well, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Can you see that? Be concerned about your interior life, Timothy, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. And then further down, he says, don't let anyone look down on you uh, because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And finally, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. See, I've read that three times now, and you can see how important it is to allow. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see that? Paul's warning, Paul's urging Timothy at the beginning of the letter here in chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. <coughs> Don't be like those people, and then later in the letter he's going to tell them, <coughs> you basically do the opposite. Because the result, if you don't do these things, if you, if you have the wrong devotion and you neglect your interior life, is that you'll end up in speculations. Whereas if you focus on the scriptures, you'll generate faith and you'll save people. You'll end up in meaningless talk and you won't end up in understanding the scriptures. And that's where he wants to go. That's where Paul's going to go next. He's going to say, if this happens, if your focus and your attention is in the wrong place, <clears throat> you'll end up, or these people at least, where they have ended up, not understanding the scriptures. He says, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. He says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which has been entrusted to me. So that's his final point there, from verse 7 down to verse 11. <coughs> And we're going to go here now, just <clears throat> before we kind of close our time together, <clears throat> we're going to go in two, two directions. One of them is going to be a little excursus on what is it just going on about um, the way to use, the proper way to use the law. And then finally, we'll just step back and say, what's his big aim? Just remind ourselves of Paul's big aim uh, in these verses, and perhaps a little bit uh, in the whole letter. So, a little bit of an excursus now on how to use the law properly. Because, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read it, I thought, why is he going off now talking about the law? Feels like he's like, okay, talking about the people who are teaching the wrong thing, tell them not to, okay, it's all good. Why this big long section now where you wander off about the law? And I found there's a bit of a puzzle in the verses as well. puzzle is this. He says in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Okay, alright, good. We also know, verse 9, that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. The law is not made for the righteous. Okay, but what about this? What about in 5.18 where Paul says, 
just, just a few couple of chapters later, he says, For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. He tells them, he, he tells Timothy, that the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, because the Scripture says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. That's in 518. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy, which is part of the Pentateuch. Now, it might be that Paul, when he says, the law is not made for the righteous, that he's not referring to the whole first five books of the Bible. He's just referring specifically to the Ten Commandments only. Maybe that's what he's doing. But in other parts of the Bible, he says things like, for example, in Ephesians, don't lie to one another. That seems like a moral absolute, really, and that sounds like something you read in the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. Or, in 1 Thessalonians, he said he tells them, don't, essentially, don't have sex with somebody else's wife because that would be wronging your brother. Or we might say, that would be adultery. Well, that, again, sounds very much like a moral absolute. It's not really optional. It's not, if you know, here's an idea or a suggestion for human flourishing. Here's a, don't have sex with your brother's wife. That sounds like something that you might read in the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. So, what does Paul mean when he says, the law is not made for the righteous? Is that absolute? It's a bit of a puzzle for me this week. I'll tread tentatively. I think there might be a clue in the fact that Paul doesn't say the law is of no use whatsoever. Because I think it's fair to say he apparently still thinks that it is. He can even say, as we've already heard tonight, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, the teaching. Unless he meant to completely exclude anything that might be called the law. What does he mean? So, he doesn't say it's of no use whatsoever, but that it's not made, or if you've got the SV, it's not laid down for. And I think there's a clue there. Because what he's saying is, there's an appropriate way to use the law, and there's an inappropriate way to use the law. And it might be the case that the key to understanding is what the fundamental power or the first purpose of the law is. And here's, so here's a few things about the law. The law, as Romans tells us, does not produce life. Paul tells us that in chapter 10, I believe. He said, if a law, if a law were given, that could produce life. But that's not what the law does. In fact, Paul says in Romans 7 that the law reveals sin. He says, in fact, if I had not known... <coughs> Sorry, I'm just going to read this so that I get it, get, it, get it precisely. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law 
is not very good at producing life, but the law is very good at exposing, revealing, and convicting sin. So there's a sense there in which you can say the law really is actually for sinners. People who are already doing what is right (coughs) don't have the need of the law. The law, right at its core, there's a kind of fundamental purpose for the law, is that it's for sinners. And here's a big list of the types of sinners. And I think that's what he's getting at there, where he says it's not laid down or not made for the righteous. And what is the relevance now in saying that? Why does Timothy, sorry, why does Paul now go to that in the context of this letter? How is that going to help Timothy? Here's why I think that's helpful. I think because when you neglect the interior life and your conscience goes, you begin to start to think that you are righteous. You might be called self-righteous. And what happens then is that you become a holy huddle. And you might start to exclude sinners. Completely. <clears throat> why have I thought that that is a reasonable explanation for why Paul has gone here? Here's why. Because in the next section, which we don't have time to go into now, and Matt will take us there next week, Paul then goes on to talk about his own story, and what he says about his own story is he says, I used to be a sinner. But God had mercy on me because I was a sinner. And in fact, verse 16, I was the worst of sinners. I was the worst of sinners. And so what does Paul want to say? In verse 15, he says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I think there might be a corresponding danger here. What's happened, I think what, okay, so I'm going to give a window into what I think the context is. I think the context of these other teachers and what they've got wrong is they've started to forget and and miss that the law was there to convict sinners and Jesus came to save sinners. And so right at the heart of the gospel and right at the centre of what you're supposed to be holding on to, Timothy, is remembering that God desires all people to be saved. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man who's the saviour of all people. That's Jesus. And the law is there to convict sinners so that they can be saved. Not for the righteous, just to, uh, sorry, not for the self-righteous to kind of fence themselves off inside this uh, ring of the law in which all the people who don't um, conform to it are on the outside. He says, the law is laid down for the sinners to bring conviction so that they would trust in Christ, the Saviour. 
And that, I think, brings us <coughs> to Paul's big aims as we finish. Paul's big aim is that there would be a community of love. We saw that. The aim of our command is love. Verse 5. The goal of this command is love. Paul wants to build, centred around this gospel, communities of love. And he wants to build around it uh, the advancing of God's work. Or perhaps you've got written in your Bible, the stewardship, uh, which is by faith. Which means what he wants to build is he wants to build loving communities that are grounded in the truth, that support the truth, with led by men who hold on to the truth and proclaim the truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so, Timothy, you need to hold on to this. You need to be diligent in these matters and give yourself wholly to them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray and then let's sing together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that. Uh, what is right and true and good will be remembered. We pray that you build us up in the